0: It's great when God is speaking amongst us, isn't it? And it's also one of those wonderful things when you're a preacher, when the things that God is saying aren't entirely discordant with what's in your message, uh, and uh, you sense that you're hearing the same sound in God. And I do feel like this morning as I come to, to share that actually there's, there's a real resonance, not in, in what Tom's just brought. I think that word from uh, Kate about broadening our horizons, about God wanting us to open ourselves up to something bigger. It all chimes with the things that I feel God wants to speak to us this morning. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name's Dan Campsall. I am married to Shustin, who's off doing kids' work. Uh, We have five kids, and uh, we now lead the church in Whitney and also uh, oversee the West region. Uh, we've been around OCC for a good number of years, it seems now. And uh, yeah, sort of um, 16, 17 years or so ago, I... Uh, no, actually, I do... <laughs> that plays down my age ever so slightly. 18 years ago, I came to Oxford. And uh, I've been, been part of uh, stuff in OCC uh, across that time. But uh, just picking up Tom's word there about God wanting to take... Plants, shrubs from the garden and move them. Uh, we have just been in a process of God digging at our roots and transplanting us from where we have been into uh, the situation in Whitney. And so we've been in a process of moving, a process that started just over a year ago when that troublemaker known to us as Steve Thomas called out somewhat out of the blue and said, Dan, just been praying about the whole situation in uh, Whitney and across West Oxfordshire, and wondered whether you might want to pray about leading that. At the time, we were enjoying, actually, a, quite a wonderful time, really, in many ways, uh, living in Morton in Marsh, up in uh, sort of northern part of the Cotswolds. We've got a lovely house that we'd spent six or seven years getting to the place that we wanted it to. We'd re-landscaped the gardens. Our kids were in a school that uh, they loved, and where we were reaching out into that community, made loads of friendships. Some of our best friends in town had just moved in down the street from where we were. And, uh, yeah, we were actually enjoying where we were in God, and feeling something like, something of a sense of uh, almost being sort of hidden in God, that it was, a, it was a great place to be. But as I say, we've recently been on the move, and from a point at which we sold our house, which was on the 13th of February this year, anyone who has tried moving a house recently will know that it seems to have got more complicated, okay? Okay. It was always a fairly complicated task. I think it was uh, Trevor Mason who once said to me uh, that really everyone should be given a dry run at buying their first house because you will make mistakes when you buy your first house and there are things that you know you learn in the process along the way. And it just seems that actually our first couple of moves were remarkably straightforward compared to this most recent of moves. So on the 13th of February, we sold our house Uh, We were under some pressure from upwards uh, in the chain to get moved, and in the end, we decided that we just, rather than lose our buyer, we needed to make that first move to get ourselves, get get, a shot of that house, and to make ourselves ready to be able to move into the place that God would reveal for us. And so, on the 17th of June, I think it was, we moved out of Morton and we moved in with our very good friends, and fortunately still our good friends, uh, Kevin and Becky Rilly, uh, over near Burford. And we took uh, the seven of us and we moved ourselves into two rooms in their house. So, that's been fun, in a way. And you know, it's had its challenges. When there's seven of us uh, in a couple of rooms, when a child wakes at night trying to trying to manage a crying child and not allow them to wake up, you know, four other people around them is uh, is a bit of a challenge. Uh, my commute got longer, so I spend a far uh, a considerable amount longer in the car getting to and from my office, and uh, and all of that sort of stuff, and uh, and yet it's not that bad. I'm not trying to convince myself here. Actually, it's not that bad. And one of the things that has struck me just in, uh, in the last few weeks is we've sort of got to the point where, uh, uh, yeah, two weeks ago, whatever it was, three weeks ago, we moved into our new place in Minster Lovell. And a number of conversations with people were saying, it must have been terrible for you. It must have been you know, hideous, it must have been horrible. List, list any other adjectives that you can kind of put around that. And it's kind of left me wondering a little bit about where we draw the line in terms of what is hideous and horrible in our lives. I mean, actually, you ask my kids whether spending four months living on a farm was hideous and terrible. And they'll tell you, actually, it was great fun. Uh, if you ask about some of the things that they got up to when they were unsupervised on the farm, you'll understand why they thought it was so much fun. Uh, and it just has left me wondering about where, where we've sort of drawn that line of what it is you know, to, to live in circumstances that are difficult as we are a people who are on the move. And just over the last few weeks, uh, Caleb was given a project from school uh, to do Uh, And it was all about World War One in the light of the fact that, you know, we've just had the recent celebrations of 100 years since the start of World War One. And the task that he was given was to go away and start to look at something of his own family history where he could find connections into World War One. Actually, when he first asked us, we were like, didn't have a clue, didn't know whether we would be able to turn up any." connections. And so then we asked sort of uh, our parents. And to be honest, our parents were a little bit kind of sketchy as sort of, oh, there might, been, there might have been someone somewhere. And, and then we bumped into Shast's great uncle Gordon uh, at a family do. He's fantastic. What is he, 88 now? Some, something like that. I mean, just, uh, but sprightly as you like. And, uh, and he starts to just tell these stories that had made it to his generation but had never made it to, to ours, of uh, uncles Horace and Elim and uh, who's the other one that I've missed out? Uh, I can't remember. Anyway, sort of, and the, and the ways in which they had served in World War I. And then my mum went away and she started to do some digging and she found out that actually my, my great-great-grandfather, I think I've got the, the, the right number of generations there, uh, had volunteered for service in France throughout the entirety of World War I and amazingly survived uh, apart from one sort of incident with a shell which struck his foot. But he volunteered to go and serve in World War I and throughout the, the entirety of the war served in northern France. Uh, he was Ypres and the Somme and uh, his task was to enter no man's land and to repair the barbed wire fence. Now, compared to living out of a couple of rooms in someone's house for four months, four years of going over the top to fix barbed wire in no man's land strikes me as a different order of difficult. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? We draw our lines in different places According to where we find ourselves in time, according to what's going on around us. And for us, you know, actually, yeah, there's, there's certain difficulties with uh, living in confined spaces. Now that we've made it to Minster and God's blessed us with a wonderful house, our new ultimate challenge is Broadband. Trying to get a telecoms company who will actually give us, you know, internet. Um, we, we peg our, our line of what is difficult and challenging for us to deal with at different times and in different seasons. One of the things that God has been speaking to us about, particularly in the West region, and I, I think it's you know, just a, a resonance in me about this time, is the whole thing of how prepared we are for war. And so we've had prophetic words about get ready because there's a time of war coming. Uh, did anyone see those pictures of the Tower of London with the poppies? Yeah, most people saw that. I... Um, uh, anyone actually get there to see it? Okay, I'm somewhat jealous, because I, I kept hearing about it on the radio, but the problem with the radio is it's very hard to visualize 888,246 ceramic poppies in the moat around the Tower of London. Okay, I, I couldn't do that. And then I went and looked at it online, and I, mean, I imagine for, for actually being there, the impact of that must be quite profound, Because that tells you about a different season. That tells you about a time when broadband was the least of your concerns. It tells you about a time when your priorities lined up in a completely different place. And the sense that I have and the things that God's been speaking to us is uh, is about being prepared for war. And I feel sometimes that I'm almost kind of um, a little bit conspicuous in the fact that I keep talking about this and, uh, and that it 's perhaps a sort of slightly unpolitic thing to do in our in our current uh, i don 't know civil society that, that I perhaps ought to be a little bit more civilized and a little bit more sophisticated than to keep talking about war and if there are those who feel like that, then i 'm um, just going to ask that you'll indulge me for a moment. I'll beg your pardon for a few moments because I feel like there's something of this whole thing about preparation for war that's on God's agenda. And the other thing that I felt as I was just preparing for this message, and actually this is, I mean, several weeks ago, I was just praying into this morning's message and I felt there were some things that God just wanted to say. And I believe that there are some people here who when I start to talk about warfare... There is a sound resonating in the spirit. There is something that touches you even as I talk in those terms because you are those who have scars. Some of those scars are old scars, but some of them are quite new and some of them still hurt. You carry around in your body scars of battle because you have fought to see the kingdom of God break through Against sickness, against cancer. You fought for the survival of marriages. You fought for children who are lost to the world. You fought to see the gospel established in new places, and you have borne the cost of that. You've taken the hits. You've questioned whether you could go on another day. You've done the hard yards. You've done the late nights. You've done the early mornings. You've given everything that you could financially and wondered how could we give any more. If that's you, there's something that actually I just... God wants to speak to you about uh, today. Because there's a preparation for war that's, that's happening. And unless you know what war's like unless actually we have some generals in our midst some lieutenants some some people who have been there and fought before who carry those scars and know what it is to stand on the field of battle and to do to wage war for the kingdom of god who know what it is to stand in that place of prayer and to to see the kingdom advance even though it costs you and it costs your family and it's cost your marriage and uh, you know you have you carry those scars unless there There are those amongst us who know what that feels like. We can't move forward as a people because actually there's something that God wants to do about one generation uh, giving to another of the things that you have walked through. And I, I stand as one of, you know, that younger generation, he says, trying to kid himself for a little while longer. I've grown up in the good of seeing others lead the charge. I've grown up in the good of seeing, you know, others fight for faith, for finance to see stuff like this happen. I've grown up in the good of seeing others who have pioneered into into new missionary situations and put themselves on. And they. They did me the privilege of taking me with them. And I just think there's a whole new sense of uh, of us moving to a, a war footing that is about one generation committing to another something of what it is to stand in that place. And to walk in those hard places and to see the kingdom of God break through and to know what it is to do battle. At our last celebration, uh, Steve Thomas was speaking. He was talking about going beyond. And and it's it's exciting, isn't it? Talking about going beyond. Anyone anyone else excited by the thought of going beyond? Okay, good. I'm glad I'm not the only one. Love the idea of, you know, expansive vision of of the things that, you know, we've heard about what Kate said this morning about God giving us a broader view about expanding our vision, about opening us up to to bigger promises. I love that stuff. But with it also comes a cost. I remember uh, it's back in about 2000. Uh, we were on our way to a leaders conference. I've been leading the church in Chipping Norton for a couple of years. And uh, this is sort of testimony to what what a great leader I am. The church, quite frankly, felt like it was falling apart. Uh, and we'd seen some very difficult pastoral situations, and we'd lost a whole load of people, and, uh, and I turned up to that leaders' conference. And uh, I, there are some times, you know, when sort of if stuff's going good in ministry, you know, if, you, if you're a house group leader or whatever, and stuff's going great, you want people to ask you the question, don't you? You know, so how's it going? And hang on a minute, let me just launch into, you know, the, the stories of success that we're seeing at the moment. There are other times when... Do you want to walk around? And this is how I felt. On the, I want to walk around with a big sandwich board on me that simply said, "Don't ask." You know, at leaders' conferences. Everyone wants to know how your church is doing, and you know, is it is it growing? Are you seeing? You know, it's like, you know, don't ask. And uh, and at this particular conference, there was a call for uh, the. Whatever age group, the under 30s, under 35s or or whatever. It's like, come to the stage. We're going to commission you for something. And, And right there, right then, I wanted to jump up on the stage and say, guys, do you know what you're signing up for? Because... As much as I, I get excited about the vision, about the things that God is calling us to step into, that he's calling us to go beyond, that he's calling us to push back boundaries. You know, at the last celebration, we saw, then saw three videos from each of the regions talking about how each of us together uh, and, and individually feel that God's talking about stretching beyond our borders, about going to new places, about planting churches in Reading and Newbury and Cheltenham and Stratford and birmingham and london or you know wherever these places are god's speaking about pushing back boundaries but if we are going to move into that kind of initiative we need to be a people who understand how to do battle how to take territory how to press through And it just got me thinking about the balance in our lives between worship, welfare, and warfare. See, when you're a settled people, you can invest in all sorts of welfare opportunities. You know, you can kind of make sure that um, all of your facilities are nice. And do, do you know what I mean? There's sort of, you start to, to make sure. It's a bit like um, when Haggai comes to uh, comes to to speak to the people who have uh, gone back to Jerusalem and they've started to build their panelled houses. This says, why are you building your panelled houses when the house of the Lord lies in ruin? If you're a settled people, you start to think about your welfare and you you start to stick nice panelling up. If you're a people of purpose who are pressing beyond, then actually the welfare stuff has to take a different perspective when it's a time of warfare. Um, You may be wondering what on earth this has to do with my title, uh, which if any of you bothered uh, to read the leaflet as you came in, was about a moving presence. Uh, I think it's got everything to do uh, with a moving presence because wherever you are going, wherever God is leading us as as a people, we need to be sure that we are going in the presence of God. Um, I feel like I ought to apologise for a sort of sombre start. Uh, you know, I, look at me, I've got flowers on the collar of my shirt. I don't look like you, kind of natural born warmonger, do I? Um, uh, but I just, there's something in the spirit that I believe God is, is speaking to us at this time about, about preparation, whether it's our, our, our journey from Morton in Marsh to Minster Lovell. It sounds like it ought to be, you know, sort of television series, visiting gastro pubs of the Cotswolds or something, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound like a great adventure, you know. I mean, it's not the desolation of Smog, is it, or um, uh, yeah, Minster Love Morton and Marsh to Minster Lovell. Um, whatever, whatever the journey is. That God's taking us on whatever, whatever, wherever he's looking to move us from, to use Tom's word about the bushes being transplanted, uh, whether from this garden to other places in OCC or or elsewhere beyond. There is something that moves us. There is something that motivates us. There's something that directs us. There's some obligation, some commitment that causes us uh, to to respond to God's call and to start to move. I was just—it's um... one of those things that you can enjoy as a parent, isn't it? It's someone else's child. <laughs> it's terrible. Um, you might get the idea that I'm not tremendously pastoral. Um, so when the presence of God determines our movements, uh, we start to become a little bit more mobile as a people. And uh, and as I was starting to look at this, I kept finding myself drawn back to Exodus uh, 33. Well, actually, sort of the whole Exodus um, story as God takes his people out of slavery in Egypt and he moves them towards the promised land. And the wonderful sense in which the presence of God goes with his people to take them and to lead them step by step. If you're not somebody who likes moving, uh, that must have been a tremendously difficult time because I actually went through it. And in the 40 years that they moved around in the desert, they faced 41 moves. I, yeah, so far we move at an average of about once every seven years. That is traumatic to me, uh, not least when I have to empty the attic Um, (laughs) moving at a rate of more than once every year, I don't know how I would cope with. But when the presence of God is leading his people, God's people have to become a little bit more mobile. So uh, let's, uh, if you'd like to join me, let's read in uh, a bit in Exodus chapter 33 and a couple of things I just draw out from there. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt and go up to the land. I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you because you are stiff necked people. And I might destroy you on the way. This is because they've just had the whole situation with the golden calf where the people have been caught in idolatry. uh, And uh, so this is something of God's rebuke to the nation. So God says, you go up, but I will not go with you. But I will not go with you because you're stiff necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words. They began to mourn. No one put on any ornaments for the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you're stiff necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now, Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at their entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud represents the presence of God leading his people, would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young assistant, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go up with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people? Unless you go with us, what else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the earth, on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. This is interesting sort of um, thing happening here. You get after the idolatry with the golden calf, God says, I will not go with my people. And then Moses goes and sort of meets with God and meets with him day after day after day. And then he makes an appeal and God says, yes, I'll go up with you, Moses. I think a couple of things I just want to draw out from this. The first thing is that there is there's no people without presence. Without the presence of God, there is no people of God. Actually, it's the defining characteristic of God's people is the presence of God with them. So in verse 15 and 16, Moses uh, contending with God says, what else will distinguish me and your people from all the people of the earth? For Moses, his identity wasn't wrapped up in anything else. I mean, there's all sorts of other things that Moses might have wrapped his identity up in, his his political leadership, his involvement in the historic and miraculous events that had taken the people out of slavery uh, in Egypt, any sort of military conquest. But the fact that uh, he delivered this sort of constitutional basis for the nation, but none of that meant anything. If the presence of God did not go with his people. The identity of God's people is entirely wrapped up in whether God is amongst them. And it just started me thinking about all of the kind of key moments uh, that we see sort of in scripture and just the sense of the presence of God in all of those places Creation, Genesis 1.1, you know, when it talks about in the beginning, God created the world and it talks about the world being formless and void and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. God there present in the Garden of Eden. As God has created man and woman and it talks about God walking with Adam in the cool of the day. When God cuts covenant with Abraham and, uh, and the, the pieces of the uh, sacrifice are laid out and there's this picture of this fiery brazier moving up and down between the pieces of the sacrifice. God there present at that moment. When God calls Moses at the burning bush, speaks to him, speaks to him out of there and he declares who he is to Moses. Of course, the Exodus itself, and we talked about the pillar of uh, uh, fire, uh, cloud by day, and the pillar of fire by night that leads God's people. Conquest in uh, into the Promised Land, and a sense of God going with His people as they part, uh, see the Jordan part. it's uh, it as the Ark of the Covenant goes down into the water on the shoulders of the priests. God's presence leading His people into conquest, even in exile. Uh, Wonderful when when God's people have been disobedient and they get uh, and uh, the promised land is stripped away from them and they're taken off into exile. Wonderful piece in uh, Ezekiel chapter one, where he sees the throne of God with the wheels within wheels and his understanding that God has got a mobile throne. Not my gag it's somebody else's might even be a Dave Perry one, actually. Um, but, uh, uh the incarnation, <laughs> you know, the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary, uh, and, uh, and the incarnation of Christ, Jesus in his baptism, as the heavens open and the dove uh, descends, his transfiguration, uh, and of course, and um, the, the end, the summation of all things, the presence of God is there. Every time that there is something happening in the history of God's people, it is marked by the presence of God. God was there in all things. And our identity as the people of God is wrapped up in the fact that his presence is with us. But it's not a static presence. So his presence hovers over the waters. There's this sort of sense of movement there. He walks in the garden, he moves between the sacrifice, he leads them in the desert. He's there, having gone with them in exile. and when the, and when we see in Christ God come amongst us, well that's the, the ultimate picture, isn't it, of the mobility of God, mobility between heaven and earth, mobility on the earth to move and to take the, to take the good news wherever uh, it goes. So, God's people are marked by His presence, and our mobility is tied to the fact that we go with God wherever He leads us. And I just uh, there's sort of sense of this means you know, wherever you go, wherever you go, the presence of God goes. And wherever God's people are not, the presence of God. Is you know in some way absent. I know that God is omnipresent, okay? but there's something about God's people going that takes the presence into those places. We had a, a message a number of years ago about God's glory filling empty spaces. That's why there's a need to go. There's a need for God's people to be mobile, to, to, to respond to the things that He's speaking, and to be prepared to move, to take His presence into new places. Isn't that right, Ben? It's why you know, guys like these guys have heard the call to go to places where there is no no chance of the gospel being preached because they've heard a call to take the presence of God to those who don't know it, to fill empty spaces with the presence of God. And it doesn't necessarily have to be in uh, West Africa, or uh, North Africa, or uh, into other parts of unreached people. Although we'd love to see more released into that, it could be in church plants uh, just outside and beyond our borders. So Moses understood that his, the identity of God's people was tied up with the presence of God, and that without the presence, there is no pe- we, we don't have an identity. We don't have an identity except for uh, the fact that we, ex- that we have the presence of God with us, that he indwells us by his spirit, that we can touch something that sets us apart from other people of the, uh, of the earth. Um, I just I felt actually as I was uh, partway through my preparation, there are, there are some here who have kind of struggled with a sense of, was God really there? When? Um, this is, uh, that there, have been, there have been things that have happened in your past, and you kind of thought, actually, I don't, I don't know that God really was there when that happened. And there's something that God wanted to just speak about healing. Actually, I, again, I felt perhaps tied into Kate's word to us earlier about things that we needed to release in order to apprehend uh, the bigger thing that God's got for us. That actually God, God always has been there with you. Wherever he has taken you, whatever you have been through, whatever you have experienced, God has been there with you. And therefore he knows And he sees your pain and he sees some of the the difficulties that you've walked through. And therefore, he is willing to to bring healing uh, to those things. So there's no people without presence. Without the presence of God, we have no identity as the people of God. The second thing, uh, the last thing I really wanted to say is that there is also no promise without presence. There is no way that we can enter into the promise of God except that the presence of God goes with us. So this comes out in the in the earlier verses here in uh, chapter thirty three. God says to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel ahead of you. Uh, Verse 3, it says, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you're a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. This phrase, uh, a, a land flowing with milk and honey, it becomes a kind of shorthand for the people of God of entering into all of the promise that God has for you. It starts at the burning bush when God calls Moses and he speaks to him out of that bush and says, come on, you're going to you're going to lead this people out of slavery. And he gives him this promise of taking them to a land flowing with milk and honey. And it becomes like a sort of shorthand for entering into all of the promise of God. And God now says to Moses, do you know what? You can go. I'll still give you a land flowing with milk and honey, but I'm not going to go with you. And Moses and the people realise that's no promise at all. That's no satisfaction of the thing that God spoke about, because being the people of God means living in the promises of God. And you can't enjoy the promises of God if you haven't got the presence of God with you because it wasn't just about material provision. It wasn't just about them coming out of oppression and slavery in Egypt and finding a place where it was easier to farm and to raise cattle and to produce from the land. That wasn't what the promised land was all about. A land flowing with milk and honey, the promise of God was more than just meeting their physical needs it's about being established as a people in the presence of God. So there is no, pres- there is no promise without presence. And it's not just Moses who understands the devastation of that. Do you see that? that? It's not just Moses who's like, I can't go without your presence. The people mourn. When they, when they think of the idea of being sent up to take hold of the promised land, without God going with them, they are devastated. They aren't just looking to get out of the desert. I mean, they're a stiff-necked people. They've just been pretty foolish in the way that they've created the golden calf and all of that sort of stuff. Okay, anyone else occasionally a bit foolish in the way that they deal, you know, with faith, with God, with the things he's called us to. But they still understood. They still understood that the idea of entering into the promise without the presence. Was woefully short of what God had brought them out of slavery in Egypt to to do. So whatever your promise is, I don't know what your promise is. Maybe something in education. Maybe something in healthcare. Maybe something in the arts. It may be something in business. It may be something in the church. It may be something in your particular community. But whatever your promise is from God, there is no promise without presence. I just feel there's something that God wants to release about fresh faith to experience the presence of God in your promised places. Wherever you go into your workplace in the morning, if you if that's the place that God's called you to go into day after day after day as a promised place to see the kingdom break through. You need to take the presence with you. To say, whether it's into you know, into the hospitals, into the healthcare system, whether it's in education, uh, whatever it's in, wherever we go as God's people, if we're going to see his promise come, it's because we take the presence of God with us. And the presence of God pervades these areas and distinguishes us from every other people on the earth. So let me just finish saying. So, we therefore need to practice the presence. That's as an, an old book, um, Brother, Brother Lawrence. I, was, uh, I suddenly, yeah, had a moment of self-doubt there. Yeah, the practicing the presence of God. It's something that people in, day, in years gone by used to do. I'm not sure that we're so good at it in our immediate, the immediacy of our current society. But I think what's wonderfully interesting in this passage is between the point where God threatens to send Israel on into the promised land without his presence going with them. And the point at which he commits himself to be present with them and to go up with them into the promised land. There's something that happens in between, which is this bit where Moses goes And sits in the presence of God. And it's just, if we want to be a people who want to take the presence of God into the promised land that he's got for us. There's a place to sit in the promise, in the presence of God. To be a people who regularly just open ourselves up to the presence of god and that's not necessarily about you know sort of going to special places and um, uh, sort of running you know round the globe uh, wherever the sort of glory is most present actually do you know what? some of the most precious times that i've experienced in recent years of the just profound sense of the presence of god were when we were looking to plant a church in morton and there'd be five or six of us in our lounge because that's all we were when we went for you know, our midweek group. And uh, John Gridley would be there and he'd get his guitar out and we'd just throw ourselves on God. It's not necessarily about going to, you know, sort of um, pursuing, pursuing it to, to the ends of the earth, but it's about making ourselves available to stand in the presence of God, the way that Moses did. So he would go and meet with God face to face. And that sitting in the presence of God is what then creates the momentum. It's, it's incongruous, isn't it? That the idea that in order for us to get momentum, we might need to stop. Okay? For, uh, actually, when we were talking a little bit about uh, about this morning, um, with, I was talking with Steve uh, and with Neil about it, and uh, we were talking about the sort of the need to, to focus on the presence of God before everything else. And... Uh, Uh, And they said, well, if you can do that, Dan, being a bit of an activist, um, then then people might hear it. As as much as I am an activist, and those of you who know me will know that, yeah, I I don't sit around much. um, That in order for us to get to momentum, we have to stop. In order for us to move, we have to rest. In order for us to enter into the promise of God with the presence of God. We need to find what it is to experience that presence. And that isn't something that we can just, we can busily conjure up. It's something that we've just got to discipline ourselves to do, to make time for, to make space for. So I'm going to suggest that we just practice the presence for a, a moment now. So band, if you'd like to, Russ and the others like to come back up. God speaking to us about a new season of mobility. I do believe that there are, there are others in this room that God is, is shaking. As you heard that word from, uh, from Tom earlier about transplanting shrubs from one place to another, I, I believe that there are people in this room and you heard that and you thought, Oh God, not me, <laughs> but I think it's me. Uh, We need to be ready to respond to that sense of mobility. But it comes out of being a people of presence. It comes out of us meeting face to face with God. It comes out of us hearing his heart for us. It comes out of us hearing his promises. It comes out of us... uh, understanding the identity that he has given us in Christ it comes out of understanding his heart for the gospel to fill those empty spaces as we sit in the presence of God actually we start to be shaped for a new mobility uh, let's just uh, well I'm going to invite you to stand if you actually just want to sit in the presence of God you're welcome to Lord Jesus, I want to pray that we would be a distinguished people, that we would be a distinctive people, that we would be a people who are marked out from all the other peoples of the earth because the presence of God is amongst us. Lord, that when people come amongst us, they say, surely God, surely God is here. Lord, that we would be a people who are marked by your presence. Lord, we carry it into the places that we go. Lord, into our places of work, into our businesses, into hospital wards, into classrooms, into... Uh, broken estates into houses where we find broken lives lord we want to be those who take the presence of god into those places with us so that there is a distinctive flavor of the presence of god that pervades those places lord we want to do it out of a out of a meeting with you Out of a sitting in your presence, out of the discipline of coming and and being a people of your presence, that that would mark us out from every other people of the earth. Holy Spirit, I just I want to invite you right now, Lord, if you touch hearts. to meet with your people in a new way right now to fill us up afresh to encounter us again that you would come that we might be a people of your presence Jesus walk amongst your church Holy Spirit come Holy Spirit come.